Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Bite and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at bite.com. Bite Clear Liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Hello, welcome to Tell Me Everything here on SiriusXM Progress. My name's Joe Sudbay. I'm guest hosting for John Fugelsang. I will be with you all week. And what a week this will be. I'm going to start with some breaking news that we got late this afternoon, early evening. Donald Trump is going to turn himself into Georgia authorities and be processed at the Fulton County Jail on Thursday. Confirmation comes from Trump himself after his legal team met with Fulton County District Attorney's Office prosecutors today. (laughs) On Truth Social a little while ago, Trump wrote, Can you believe it? I'll be going to Atlanta, Georgia on Thursday to be arrested, in all caps, by a radical left District Attorney, Fonnie Willis. Okay, well, the first part is true. He's going to Atlanta, Georgia on Thursday to be arrested. Just might as well put a period there because that's the story. He's going to be arrested. And um, his legal team was presented with a $200,000 bail agreement. There are conditions. There are actually pretty strict conditions. And some of the real lawyers who were looking at the conditions for some of the other co-defendants noted that Trump's conditions are more strict. For example, the defendant, meaning Trump, shall perform no act to intimidate any person known to him or her to be a co-defendant or witness in this case, or otherwise obstruct the administration of justice. There were some specifics there that were laid out. And then there was another condition. The defendant shall not communicate in any way, directly or indirectly, about the facts of this case with any person known to him to be a co-defendant, in this case, except through his or her counsel. So some pretty strict conditions. And of course, when we read Trump's statement on True Social, I read the first part. But 
when he called Fonnie Willis radical left district attorney, he continued, who was overseeing one of the greatest murder and violent crime disasters in American history. In my case, the trip to Atlanta is not for murder, in quotes, but for making a perfect phone call. Yeah, so he's already doing exactly what he's not supposed to. It'll be interesting to see if and when there are any repercussions for Donald Trump. Now, we're not going to spend the whole week talking about Donald Trump, uh, but his name will come up. I'm going to try and play no video or audio from him, except maybe we have to a little bit on Wednesday night, which is debate night, Republican primary, presidential primary debate night, the first one sponsored by the RNC on the RNC media news outlet, Fox News. It'll be in Milwaukee. Of course, Trump's not going to be there. He's doing a pre-recorded interview with his BFF, Tucker Carlson, who, if you remember what we learned this spring from the Dominion lawsuit, texted two colleagues on January 4th, 2021, I hate him passionately, meaning Trump. So they're going to be together on Wednesday for a pre-recorded interview, the counter-programming to the debate. But I will be here during the debate. We'll be covering it. We'll be some, doing some counter-programming about real issues that people care about because that's not going to be discussed on that stage that night. You know that. I know that. They know that. The media knows that. They'll all pretend the rest of the media, not here on progress. We'll call it what it is. So that's on Wednesday. In a little bit, I'm going to be talking to Scott Paul, who's the president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. You know, the president of the United States, Joe Biden, has been pushing Bidenomics. He's been going around the country talking about his agenda, the implementation of his agenda, the implementation of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the Chips and Science Act, the Inflation Reduction Act and the jobs that it's creating. Scott Paul covers this stuff, works on these issues. So I'm, I, in a few minutes, I'm going to help help him unpack the reality of what's going on because Republicans are saying it's not real. It's not real. You know, the economy is getting a lot better. The president is campaigning on it. They're doing a twenty five million dollar ad buy right now in anticipation of this Republican debate. The Biden campaign and the DNC, Democratic National Committee, are going to be very aggressive in countering the Republican debate and um, Trump's interview with the guy who passionately hated him on January 4th, but apparently now they're best friends. So we'll be talking about that in a few minutes. And in the next hour, I'm going to be joined by Kathleen Friedel, political historian, one of the smartest people I know. She has dived deep into fascism. Actually, in March of 2016, she was telling us what Trump was doing is fascism. And she's also an expert on drugs. She's written a book on the drug war. So I want to talk about two subjects with her, fascism and fentanyl. Because we will hear the, the word fentanyl a lot on the stage on Wednesday night. You won't hear any solutions. You'll hear a lot of demagoguing. And it is a crisis in this country. It is a health care crisis. It is a public health crisis. It is a family crisis for so many families. And what we're not getting from Republicans are solutions. So I want to dive into that. So we've got a great show ahead of us tonight. So many other stories I want to cover. Hopefully all of you in Southern California, in Nevada, moving up the coast even, are doing okay in the wake of Hurricane Hillary. It was a tropical storm when it hit. 
Obviously, hope everyone is okay on the Baja Peninsula, too, where it hit with hurricane-force winds. This was the first hurricane tropical storm warning on the West Coast. We are in a climate crisis. Let's not pretend. Another issue you won't hear about Wednesday night on the Republican debate stage. This storm left a half year's worth of rain across Southern California and parts of the desert southwest on Sunday. It's now a subtropical system. It's continuing north. 10 inches of rain up into the Rockies. Meanwhile, on the other ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, the other side of the United States, the hurricane season is heating up. The National Hurricane Center is currently tracking five tropical systems, two of which are likely to impact land areas. They don't seem to be right now storms that will be as significant as Hillary was in the Pacific. But there's uh, tropical storm warnings have been issued for the Gulf Coast of Texas for a storm that's forming quickly in the Gulf of Mexico. The Gulf of Mexico is very warm. Those storms heat up very quickly. Just about a week and a half ago, the National Hurricane Center increased its predictions for the 2023 hurricane season from a 30 percent chance of an above normal season to a 60 percent chance of an above normal season. So. You know, we used to just say if you're in the southeast and eastern seaboard, you have to pay attention to these hurricanes. Now we have to say the West Coast as well. But seriously, these storms can be very powerful, as many of you know. And if you live in Florida, you're probably aware that your governor's solution to the crisis that you're facing with loss of home insurance is to knock on wood that you don't have a big storm. And you think I'm making that up. I'm not making that up. Ron DeSantis said that a couple of weeks ago. Let's knock on wood. We don't get a big storm. Now, he can't be worrying about you in Florida right now because he's too busy traipsing around the country trying to get people to like him, which is a futile, futile effort. <laughs> Just futile. And the more people know him, the worse it gets. We're going to be back here on Tell Me Everything in just a few minutes. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on, because you know I love it when you do. 
Welcome back. This is Tell Me Everything. I'm Joe Sudbay, guest hosting for John Fugelsang tonight. And if, you know, if you've been paying attention to the economy and to the messaging from the Biden White House, which has been hard because we've had all these indictments sucking up all the news cycle, you will have noticed, and we talk about it a lot here on the Progress Channel, the president is going around touting the success of his agenda. And one of the people who's actually spoken positively about his agenda is the CEO of U.S. Steel. He's talked about a manufacturing renaissance. So I said, I need to dig into this more since I'm guest hosting. And the one person I know who can help us unpack the reality of what is happening in America is our next guest, Scott Paul, the president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Scott, welcome back to SiriusXM Progress. Hey, Joe, it's uh, great to be back with you again. Thanks for having me on. Well, I, I'm really glad you could you could join us. I mean, Scott, you know, I, I've been watching the president. He's he, he was in Maine at Auburn Manufacturing. He's been yeah. in Wisconsin. He was recently in New Mexico in it really touting the successes of his agenda. You know, the implementation of the infrastructure law, the Chips and Science Act, the Inflation Reduction Act. You're on the front lines. Your organization is committed to manufacturing and made in America. What's your sense of what's been happening? And then we can dig into it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th there is there is something happening and it is positive. And I think, you know, e even if you're wearing a partisan hat, it's hard to ignore the data. And the data is pretty overwhelming. I mean, we've added uh, 800,000 manufacturing jobs so far in this administration. Uh, factory construction is booming at a level we really have never seen in the modern American economy before. And I remember the days, and you probably do as well, where the academic experts said, well, there's never going to be any large scale factories built in America. again. It's just not going to happen. Either the robots or outsourcing or whatever, it's just not going to happen. And they're going up all over the United States of America. We have seen the public investment and incentives that were made through the laws that you described dealing with semiconductors and investing in our roads and bridges and our infrastructure and also investing in our clean energy future and electric vehicles, they have leveraged hundreds of billions of dollars in private sector uh, investment from manufacturers. And in just a short amount of time, and I think this is a great example, there used to be very few companies uh, outside of Tesla that made electric vehicle chargers in the United States. And just in the time that this clean energy money has been announced over the last year, a little more, there are about 20 to 25 companies that have announced they're opening factories to build uh, chargers for uh, for electric vehicles. So it, it's tangible. It's real. It's happening coast to coast. There is a concentration in the industrial heartland, which is the Midwest and kind of the Mid-South now. There's no doubt about that. 
Uh, and there are four hire, you know, there, there are uh, looking for hire signs all over, all over factories uh, in the United States right now, Joe. You know, Scott, this is, you know, this is, this is like really good news. And as someone, you have been on the front lines for a while. You worked at the AFL. You've been at, at uh, the Alliance for American Manufacturing since 2007. You have watched this. You have watched politicians for a long time say they were going to deliver for American manufacturing. This is like really the first time it's happened in, like you said, modern American history. Um, yeah. What, what do you what do you attribute it to? I mean, we've talked about the legislation, but dig into that a little bit, because I think it's yeah. really important for all of us to understand. Yeah. 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 So so some of this is definitely has to do with the political political economy and decisions that are being made, public policy. There is no question about that, that the industrial policy of this administration has made a big difference. And there there's a there's an iron claw uh, ironclad law of economics that um, I think is underappreciated. And it's that, you know, actors respond to incentives, whether it's consumers or workers or businesses. And so if you have the incentives there, um, manufacturers are going to find a way uh, to serve that market. And uh, th- that's exactly what has happened. It's same with, uh, with, with consumers for clean energy products uh, as well. And getting scaling up of uh, electric vehicle purchases and what have you. So I think that that's one of the foundational aspects of it. I, I do think that there was another factor, and part of this was brought on by a, a new understanding that came out of the pandemic, uh, and I th- and all the supply chain disruptions that we saw and the shortages. Uh, and I think part of this came out of the instability that we've seen in our relationship with China, um, mm-hmm. whether it's trade or security or technology or, you know, there's many other issues that are wrapped into that. But I think that also served to shake up the global supply chain business model a little bit in a way that it hadn't been uh, shaken up for a couple of decades. And so the combination of this internal investment, if you will, that the Biden administration has made in clean energy and semiconductors and infrastructure, uh, combined with folks that now may be looking to deleverage, de-risk, decouple, whatever you want to call it with respect to China, has created some new opportunities here. And also, I will say the fact that you know, while the the tariffs of the Trump administration, you know, weren't terribly popular with uh, economists or what have you, again, businesses respond to incentives. And if they see the tariffs are going to be there and that Biden is going to keep them in place, which he has, uh, that's going to that's going to make a difference as well. Um, but what Trump was never able to do was to have a strategy to build onto that. Uh, and it's something that this administration, I think, responds very, very well. And we're seeing the fruits of it uh, every day. It's really fascinating. I mean, you know, and I, I think what's interesting is as much as, you know, and I, you know, I'm a dork, I pay attention to this stuff. I watch the president. I've been able to do a lot of serious XM progress this summer and played clips from him when he's been around the country. 
and you do because it's the work you do, but it feels like it hasn't permeated the American public. And I think I do think the uh, traditional media has a lot of uh, a lot of responsibility there. But yeah. what I'm interested in, Scott, you have a lot of um, staffers who are around the country. What are they hearing? Are, is there a perception among workers that something is changing? Are you picking that up? Are you um, hearing it? Are, are, are your are your colleagues and staffers talking about it? Yeah, that that is a really great question, and I, I think that you know, like everybody else, you know, where you consume your news makes a, makes a big difference, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, so yeah. You, you may you may never hear about this. But, but, and, but we've discovered something interesting because we actually, in a poll we did with Morning Consult, and we asked a number of different questions. One was, have you heard anything about factories coming to your community or, or coming to the United States, new factories? Uh, because it has been in the news occasionally. And, and the numbers were pretty low. Uh, you know, it was like maybe 30, 35 percent had heard something about it, um, e- even though, again, this kind of renaissance is pretty widespread and you're going to find examples in every state of of factory openings, uh, you know, outside of kind of local news and the ribbon cutting and the announcements like that. It doesn't generate a whole lot of news outside of, like, say, the business channels. Right. Um, and so for. Uh, for casual news consumers, um, you know, it's probably not there yet, which is why the White House and this repetition going out there as much as they possibly can to talk about it is going to make a difference. Because the one thing we do know, Joe, and and we know this um, at the local level as well, is that people do like news like this. They really do, because they know it means well-paying jobs. They know that there are spinoff effects for all of this. The grocery store is going to do better. The hardware store is going to do better. The tax base is going to do better. And so there's always palpable excitement um, when you you see one of these announcements. Now, I'm not going to sugarcoat it and pretend like there aren't challenges. There's still obviously challenges when it comes to organizing some of these workers, particularly in the South or where there are labor laws that are tilted far away from worker interests. So I think that's an issue. And, you know, there's still cases where you're seeing some factories that shut down, either because of the business cycle or because of a lot of imports coming in or what have you. But the thing that has changed definitely uh, is this spate of factory announcements. And I just I did a road trip across the entire country this summer with my sons. And I I went through so many towns where there were factories going up where you could see them just off the interstate, whether it was in uh, Virginia or Tennessee or Texas or the the Northern Great Plains or a lot of other places. And I had never seen anything like that before. And it was, I mean, it was truly, truly astounding. And and yeah, I've worked on these issues for decades now. And usually, you know, we've been we've had the the lifeboats out, and we're just trying to to find safety. And so this is a far different scenario where we are poised for great things in American manufacturing if these policies continue. Now, 
you know, there's some people who want to get rid of them, and that would be a huge mistake. Uh, but the tra- the trajectory has changed considerably just in the last year or year and a half, really. Fascinating. And and I'll say, Scott, what I know, and look, we do know that there are efforts and it'll probably be discussed on Wednesday night at the Republican debate about repealing the Inflation Reduction Act and ending, you know, the the investment. But it does mean jobs right now. And look, there's you, you worked for a member of Congress for several years back in the day. Members of Congress love nothing better than a photo op at a ribbon cutting. And a lot of them are showing up for oh, ribbon yeah. cuttings at, at uh, infrastructure uh, job, infrastructure projects and new factories that they didn't vote for. And, yeah. and the White House is quick to point that out. But it does yeah. show the power of that kind of, uh, of of bringing that to your community, even if you voted against it. Yeah, that, that's exactly right, which is why it's so interesting at the local level and at the state level many times, uh, you know, there's far less kind of rancor about the economics of all of this th- than there is at the, at the federal level. Now, this isn't always true, I will say, but I think it's mostly true. And so, yeah, you have some Republicans tying themselves in knots where they're showing up. And one of my favorite examples is Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia, <laughs> who has a massive solar factory opening in her district, and she supports it and then has to walk around and say, well, I, you know, I was against the law, but it doesn't mean I was against the specific provision that's helping them. And so you have a lot of... Uh, yeah, yeah, a, a lot of uh, a twisted logic <laughs> that is taking place right now to try to weave themselves out of this. But, but it, it, at the same time, there's a huge risk for any Republican now who votes to uh, defund some of this because it does mean jobs uh, in their district in, in almost every case, Joe. Yeah. And I actually saw, um, you know, I've been paying attention to Ohio. We've all been paying attention to Ohio, especially in the wake of issue one. We know Sherrod Brown, who's a great champion of working men and women, is on the ballot next year. And uh, this past week, the governor and lieutenant governor were all giddy because their state has a very, very low unemployment rate. And I saw a quote from the lieutenant governor, um, Husted, who said, John Husted, who said, We know that Ohio struggled as in the old days when we were a Rust Belt state. Now we're the Silicon Silicon heartland where high tech jobs and high tech manufacturing are coming. This is great news for our future. And I said that 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 has a lot to do with the Chips and Science Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, not mentioned, of course, but it is true. And um, when you see like Republican leaders in a state like Ohio, they love the jobs. They love the revenue that's coming with it. And to me, that's, you know, kind of a manifestation that no matter, you know, I know the Heritage Foundation and others are saying, no, this is a mirage. It's not really happening. But, you know, you got Republican governor, lieutenant governor in Ohio saying, yeah, it's happening. It's happening right here. And we're happy. (laughs) I mean, that seems real. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's real. I, I mean, again, you cannot dispute the uh, factory construction data, the private investment data, uh, the jobs data. Um, it is all there uh, and it's real and it's happening all over the place. So you have to I, I don't know how you can build the case that this is not getting a, a good return on investment because it 
absolutely is. It's just a very inconvenient truth for people who opposed Biden's agenda or this idea of industrial policy. In fact, to Paul Krugman's credit, and this guy, of course, is is an excellent columnist, you know, won a Nobel Prize for 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 economics, for his trade theory, was an industrial policy critic, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. He's like, this is working. You know, this this is great. Uh, let's do more of it. This is going to be great for our country. And so it's uh, it's interesting that 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 when you're analyzing it through an objective point of view, that you have to come to the conclusion that this has been a success and we hope it continues to be one as well. Right. And there's one there's one other thing. There's a line. Biden uses it a lot um, and, he, and he uses it in front of union workers. And he's actually and we've talked before, uh, Scott and I have talked before, and at the time, and this was uh, six months, maybe a year ago, Scott, you thought that Biden was the best union president we've ever had. And when he speaks, he says, when I think climate, I think jobs, union jobs. And he always wants to get in that union jobs, which I feel like this past summer, this past year, we have seen a renaissance in the labor movement. Very exciting to me to watch it, um, you know, uh, new kinds of organizing. And then the uh, Teamsters, UPS deal. It does yeah. feel like union jobs are very much part of this conversation. I think that's critically important. Yeah, it absolutely is, because irrespective of how much you're willing to invest in our climate future, and personally, I think it should be a lot, the the thing that's going to get legislation policy across the finish line is the the job creation. And so if you're simply trading foreign oil for Chinese solar panels, for a lot of Americans, that's just not going to fly, even though it may for an environmentalist, right? It's just not going to fly. So the jobs component of this is so critically important. And there's a very tangible example. Again, I'm going to go back to Georgia, where this has worked, where the steel workers successfully organized a Bluebird electric vehicle bus factory. I mean, I don't know. I I remember riding around in a Bluebird bus when I was a kid going to to school, and, and you may have as well. But they have a factory in Georgia, hard state to organize, Steel workers were able to do it, and, and part of that is is to their organizing credit. But for a change, they were backstopped by federal policy because if Bluebird wanted to access federal funds for its uh, for its fleet to build these electric school buses, they had to be made in America. So they could not use the threat of moving that factory abroad. Uh, to try to crush an organizing campaign. And so that is one very tangible example of where those policy levers are working for working people in the United States. It's fascinating. I'm really glad you could join us today, Scott. Um, Before I let you go, what are you what are you watching for? Like, what should we keep an eye on over the next weeks and months as as we continue to, you know, watch what's happening as a result of these major pieces of legislation? What are some of the key things you and your uh, organization are are paying particular attention to? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. And so we've obviously made a lot of progress. We want to build on that uh, as as the as the resources are getting out the door and as the laws are being implemented. And there are still critics of all of this. Right. And so mm-hmm. we're trying to uh, 
uh, shake off attempts to weaken this or to cut the funding uh, and to make sure that uh, supporters of the goals, particularly the climate goals or the, the technology goals with respect to semiconductors, understand that you can't shortchange the made in America aspects of this as well, because this is what generates that public support uh, and also is going to have the value added jobs. And so we're, we're preaching that message. And the thing that we tell the White House all the time is that you cannot talk about this uh, enough. <laughs> I mean, you know, right. make yourself sick from talking about this uh, every day and it will it will make a difference because this is a message that people want to hear that people need to hear because when a factory comes to town that is uh that's something that unites democrats independents republicans as being unquestionably a great thing really important and i agree with you the white house can't hammer this enough and uh i i will say it it <laughs> the president president biden really does seem like he's in his happy place when he's talking about this stuff <laughs> i get a kick yeah, he out does. of that <laughs> right. Uh, so, okay, Scott Paul, where can people find you? Where can people find your organization if they want to know more? Yeah, yeah, we're we're uh, on the web at AmericanManufacturing.org. We're on all of the social media platforms, and um, I tweet or X, whatever it's called now, at uh, Scott Paul AAM as well. Yeah, I'm going to always call it Twitter. I'm always going to call it tweeting, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> a worthwhile Seems follow. Right. Thank you so much for joining us and helping us really kind of unpack this. And and I think it's an important and I, I appreciate your time tonight, Scott Paul. Of course, Joe. Thanks so much for having me on. Appreciate it. You're most welcome. We're going to take a break here and tell me everything. We come back. We're getting on the phones. Back in a few. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back. My name's Joe Sudbay, guest hosting for John tonight here on Tell Me Everything. And I'm really excited right now for our next guest, someone I've known for a long time, truly one of the smartest people I know, a political historian, author of the GI Bill and the Drug Wars in America. Uh, she has a forthcoming book, Liberalism and the Reinvention of the Corporate Person. Kathleen Friedel, welcome back to SiriusXM Progress. Thank you so much, Joe. It's great to be here. Well, I have many things I want to talk to you about. And, and I was thinking about it, and I said at the beginning of the show, I actually kind of want to tie it all in together, fascism and fentanyl. And, um, you know, I, I have this sense, 
we've been talking a lot about the debate on Wednesday night, the Republican debate. And back in 2016, you wrote a piece for HuffPost back when they had a blog called Sorry Folks, It's Fascism, about what we were seeing from Donald Trump. And I really feel like what we're going to see on Wednesday night is basically fascism on a national stage from Republicans. And I just really think it's important. It's so easy to think of the issues they're talking about in silos. But when you take a step back and look at what DeSantis is doing, look at what Trump is doing, it really is quite dangerous for our democracy. I don't I don't think there's any question about it. And I I love the way you introduced our segment by suggesting that these issues are actually interwoven and interlaced. And if you step back and look at the big picture, it seems very clear that the Republican Party is attaching itself to some notional, almost mythical identity of what the United States is. And that identity has racial, religious, even even I would say residential components to it. And they present that identity as under threat or under attack, which is a very common um, notion or framework for fascists. Um, Benito Mussolini did it with you know immigrants coming in from the north of Italy. Germany did it with the Jews from inside, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's under attack. And the way in which the Republican Party it's been remarkable, frankly, the degree to which the Republican Party has been successful in concentrating that vulnerability on this idea of the border and that the United States and its its notional identity has come under threat because of the border. Um, and I think that's that's a policy position is accepted by, as far as I know, every single Republican who's an announced an intention to run for president. It's become... You know, since Trump became president uh, or even became their nominee, it's become this kind of standard rhetoric. And, um, you know, they've all adopted his positions. Axios Mm -hmm. today had a scoop about Trump's and Stephen Miller's new immigration policy. And I looked at it and I work on the issue and there was nothing new. It's the same stuff. It's just kind of expanded and they've expanded it to legal immigration as opposed to just uh, attacking the undocumented community. And that very much fits in with this idea of trying to, you know, change, you know, they're great concern. And we just I just had a caller who said, you know, you're trying to turn America into a third world country. And that, you know, that third world country rhetoric is very emblematic of the great replacement theory, which, you know, many Americans first heard of when they saw the white nationalists chanting in Charlottesville. When they were saying Jews will not replace us, you will not replace us. They were saying we want a white nationalist America. And that's going to be on the stage on. Yeah. Yeah. Know, and they may try and, you know, n- make it sound not as uh, dramatic as those white nationalists, but it's still the same thing. Oh, it's it's party orthodoxy. And, you know, we can speak about the ways in which there's been decades of policy that have led us to this moment, whether it's the war on drugs and the war on terror. In fact, I would be <laughs> one to speak on it. And we can also speak about how. You know, the failure of the Democratic Party to reconceptualize what drug policy looks like 
lends it, itself to an impression that the Democrats are only going about half measures. You know, you endorse a militant policy, but not an all the way militant policy like Hillary Clinton. You want to build, build a fence and not a wall. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, we can talk about all of the tributaries that have led us to this moment. But I want to return to that conversation you had with Rodney um, and the United States is a third world country. I mean, nobody uses the language of a third world country because it's acquired these um, racial connotations and, you know, the stigma of the global south. But I do want to share and and maybe Rodney's still listening. I do want to share that I actually wrote a piece in an outlet called The Conversation, which considered the United States um, as a developing country. And there are actual measures of this. The United Nations um, produces rankings of, you know, the developed world, the developing world and the underdeveloped world. And in this in this particular um, catalog, the underdeveloped world would be the third world. So my argument is when you look at these actual measures, the United States performs quite badly. And we've slipped very recently on some of the key measures that have to do with um, political freedom and elections and the peaceful transfer of power. And the, that slip in the rankings, of course, has come about as a result of the Republican Party. But I really want to say that a lot of our poor performance on other measures, particularly health outcomes, probably a lot of your listeners will be familiar with maternal uh, mortality rates in the United States, which are abysmal. A lot of those outcomes, which we are mediocre at best, are actually a result of our failure to embrace a diverse society. And specifically, and you were kind enough to mention, you know, some of my publications, um, you know, all the big ones um, in the introduction. But whether you're talking about the World War II GI Bill, which barred um, black veterans from capitalizing on key provisions, including home ownership, or a legacy of racism in this country written more broadly, um, affecting Social Security, affecting Medicare, affecting all of our great social policy programs, um, racism is the reason why we are slipping and falling in the rankings that Rodney was referring to. It's it's the party and the politics um, and the policies of Republicans that have gotten us to this moment where we have to take seriously the idea that not only can the United States no longer lay claim to being a developed country, let alone foremost among the developed countries, we now have to consider whether we can seriously claim to be the leader of the free world when the majority of one of our major political parties does not accept the outcome of a presidential election. Right, right. It is. And and that we're saying, you know, I mean, 10 years ago, when I think we met about 10 years ago, Kathleen, we had our concerns about the Republican Party and the direction it was taken. It was right after the election of uh, re-election of Barack Obama. And but the idea that the party would not accept an election. And look, we can look at the 2000 election and realize what Republicans did sure. and it up to the Supreme Court. But that we are still that Trump is still litigating this election and still has believers who think he won and he continues to say it. And, you know, it's it literally is being literally is being litigated in courts right now through indictments of him. Um, right. 
it, it is it is a sad state. And look, this is, you know, it, it impacts. I, I think it was Fitch who just downgraded the American, uh, downgraded us from AAA to AA plus because of that very reason and because of the shenanigans that are being pulled on Capitol Hill when it comes to the budget. And I actually want to get into that a little bit, Kathleen, because it's something um, today, the Freedom Caucus, um, you know, who have undue influence in the party because Kevin McCarthy has, you know, has a very slim margin and needs their votes to stay as speaker. They issued basically another hostage letter today listing their demands for what will be in the continuing resolution. And just for everyone to remember, Congress is in recess right now. They come back September 12th. They must pass a federal budget by September 30th um, or the government shuts down. Now, they can do what's called a continuing resolution to keep the government going. The Freedom Caucus is viewing this as an opportunity. They have three conditions. Include the House pass to cure the Border Act, to cease unchecked flow of illegal... This is their terminology. I would never use this terminology. Illegal migrants, combat the evils of human trafficking, and stop the flood of dangerous fentanyl into our community. Address the unprecedented weaponization of the Justice Department and FBI to focus them on prosecuting real criminals instead of conducting political witch hunts and targeting law-abiding citizens. And end the left's cancerous woke policies in the Pentagon, undermining our military's core warfighting mission. I feel like they encapsulate so much in those, Kathleen, and sorry to have forced everybody to listen to what these, this inanity from them. But number one is their anti-immigrant mm-hmm. agenda, which they use fentanyl as a weapon. And I want to talk about that. Number two, they're protecting Trump like this. Number two, they're willing to defund DOJ and FBI to protect Trump. And number three, it's anti-abortion, anti-LGBTQ. It's a fascist agenda. This is, it's like, it, when, when, if you take them out of their silos and put them all together, they are trying to impose their worldview, their white Christian nationalist worldview on us. Right. And again, just to start, and I don't want to I don't want to dwell on Rodney or, or make some kind of example of him because he's not here to, to talk for himself. But to circle back the suggestion that the Department of Justice or any part of the criminal justice system drop any investigations into political power, politically powerful people is what would render the United States a third world country in his, in his language. Those are precisely the kinds of things that denigrate um, our reputation and demote our status um, in the world. So if we are, con- and, and I think that there's plenty of reasons to be concerned about the Department of Justice. I, you know, just am now finishing a book um, on the corporate person and the failure to prosecute um, scandals and and actual law breaking in in corporate America, um, I think mm-hmm. there's you know I can have a serious conversation with anyone. Of course, any historian um, of the United States, particularly historians of civil rights, the civil the Black Freedom Movement, can have a conversation about the FBI. Anyone who reads the newspaper and has been reading it through the War on Terror. Um, can have a conversation with the FBI. I read recently that um, a verdict was thrown out um, because the FBI, um, the judge excoriated the FBI for conducting basically an entrapment. But it's interesting how the powers and the occasional abuses by prosecutors and the criminal justice system, when those powers are imposed upon the black body, or the urban dweller, or the political dissident, 
those powers are not natural and right in the eyes of, um, you know, I, again, I don't want to pick on Rodney, but in the eyes of the Republican Party. But as yeah. soon as those powers are imposed, even without any abuses, on the white male conservative body, all of a sudden the Department of Justice has to be defunded. And I think that that tells us, I think it's it's a, you know, these people are in a sense telling on themselves. They're telling us what they view the justice system, um, what, what its purpose really is. Um, that is to say, not to enforce the laws with impartiality and to preserve and protect the public order, but rather to defend status, and in particular, to defend the white male conservative body. That's right. And in the fact that they say targeting law-abiding citizens, if you try to overturn an election, you're de facto not law-abiding. But um, just, just, you know, you have written on the drug war, and I think one of the words we'll hear a lot on the stage yep. on Wednesday is fentanyl. And, you know, it's an issue if you watch Republicans, they're always talking about fentanyl. Look, fentanyl is a crisis. I'm from Maine. Fentanyl is a crisis in Maine. Um, I was in Maine. I was walking my dog. I actually saw someone shooting up and I saw them using fentanyl strips. And it, I have to admit, it freaked me out. I, I, mm -hmm. I know there are needles around. I know, you know, the death rate is very high. But the one thing that I find so irksome about it is they use it as a political issue to talk about the border and act like, uh, you know, migrants entering the country are all bringing fentanyl. And DeSantis last week said anyone with a backpack should be shot. And it's like, Jesus, God. if that's what you think the cartels are yeah. doing, no wonder, no wonder they're flooding this country because it's such a misread and it's such it's they're, they're not offering solutions. They're offering rhetoric. And it's just not an, it's an issue that cries out for solutions. Yeah. And what we're seeing with the border and with fentanyl and it, and it is the most dangerous and by far the most lethal drug crisis in U.S. history. What we're seeing is not a failure of border policy, but a failure of drug policy. By the time that fentanyl crosses the border, all of the important decisions have been made, right? Including all the calculations that factor into the loss of any particular shipment and many, 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 many others. When you think about supply side interventions in, in drugs and the flow of drugs, the border is a very late stage intervention. All we are motivating the drug policy, the drug trafficking organizations to do when we intervene at the border is we're just incentivizing innovation, you know, on the part of the DTOs, new ways to come to across the border. We're not motivating change or altering the market in any any real way. And frankly, the only thing that will motivate um, change be is actions beyond the border and change within Mexico itself. This is a very fluid, nimble, incredibly adaptive set of interests that are trafficking drugs from across um, the border in Mexico. These folks will, if you sanction one, you know, company, one person, even if you manage to draw a circle around one particular drug trafficking organization, which, you know, good luck with that. But even if you manage to do that, they're so nimble, they'll adapt to the very next day. If not, you know, maybe even the very next minute. They maybe even have planned that out in advance. The only thing that 
those folks are going to respond to is systemic change within Mexico itself. And I think that's really the conversation we need to be having. Um, the United States in its own history went through this kind of phase itself. You know, we went through a phase in the late 1920s and the 1930s when, when crime ruled, including in certain particular cities like St. Louis, um, crime ruled. The rule of law did not. And alcohol prohibition only enhanced the powers of the the alcohol traffickers in this country, right? And the same thing is taking place with drug prohibition. We're providing all the wrong incentives to all the wrong people. What we need to do is have a serious conversation about what kind of sticks and what kind of carrots need to be in place with the government of Mexico itself. These folks will only yield to structural systemic change within Mexico itself. And I'm sorry to go off on this little kind of bully pulpit that I have about drug policy, but I take any advantage I can because we hear so few new ideas about how to manage the flow of this incredibly potent and incredibly dangerous supply. And in the event anyone out there listening should need to hear it, then let me say there is no safe supply on the streets right now. You could right. be buying what you think is heroin. It's probably going to have fentanyl in it one of these days. You can be buying what you think is methamphetamine. It's probably going to have fentanyl in, one of, in it one of these days. So on with cocaine. You should see the methamphetamine and the cocaine overdose numbers, Joe. They are as high as what we called an opioid crisis in 2013 just off of heroin. That's how much those numbers have gone up. Why have they gone up? Because there's fentanyl present present in that supply. The majority of those overdoses have fentanyl in the supply. It's just that the drug coroner's office or the medical examine, examiner will sometimes list the drug that was um, you know, found the most in someone's body. It's not necessarily the drug that was responsible for the drug overdose. And so there's just no, we have so many stories, they're heartbreaking when you hear about teenagers or recreational drug users who are just thinking they're buying a Xanax or whatever off of the street and it's labeled Xanax. I mean, and it's got the kind of identifiers yeah. that somebody would look for and it's got fentanyl in it. There is no safe supply right now. And we're, we're kind of beyond the point. The only, the only response drug prohibition has ever given us is escalation. And there's only one path that's going to, you know, go down and that we're just going to what's going to succeed fentanyl is a drug that's even worse than fentanyl if we keep going down this path. And so, you know, I, you know go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say it's it's so frightening and it is it's very real. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have either know someone or have seen have something happen in their community. It's happening in communities around the country. And that's what kind of maddens me about Republicans, because they're like, oh, you know, it's migrants coming in. Most of it coming in comes through U.S. citizens. That, okay. Like you said, the cartels have already thought it through. And I always like to make the point, you know, it, it, reading St Sam Quinonia's Dreamland, which you, you um, suggested I read, you realize the role that the opioid epidemic, the opioid crisis that was, you know, uh, came from the pharma industry, created a market for the cartels. And then the other thing is we can't overlook the, the, the firepower that the cartels have comes from the United States as well because of our weak Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, 
those, you know, those are things in people in this country who have addiction. It is so hard. It is so hard to find treatment. That is wrong, too. And I, I think that goes all the way back to Reagan when he started changing the way we treated people with mental illnesses and people with addiction. And there's just so much more that could be done. And instead, all we get from Republicans is this rhetoric. And, you know, look, I, the Biden administration could be doing more. They know they have a number of um, commissions and policies. And I, I get I get their reports from the White House. We need more. And I think yep. what you're offering is a new way of looking at it and treating it in a different way. And look, if we can't come up with new ideas, given the magnitude of this crisis, I don't know what we're going to do. Right. I mean, you can you can ask an open border to be more orderly and efficient, but you can't ask a border to solve problems that lie well beyond that. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's just impossible for a border to do. If you look to the border to solve this problem, then you'll be going to be looking to close the border. Right. That's 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 your option. Um, so short of closing the border, entirely closing it and closing it to U.S. citizens who, as you mentioned, make up the overwhelming majority of couriers of fentanyl into this country from Mexico. Um, and they're passing through legal points of entry. They're not so- somebody, you know, running for their lives with a backpack who Governor DeSantis, um, as you mentioned earlier, would like to shoot on sight, which is which is frankly barbaric. Um, it's just a barbaric thing to say. Um, so, you know, short of closing the border, you cannot look to the border to solve this problem. You just won't be able to do it. And so we have to reconfigure how we're thinking about the supply side. Who are the targets of the supply side policy? Is the target the drug traffickers? Well, <laughs> they're not going to listen to us. They're not going to respond to our incentives. But is the target the Mexican government? I think that's the smarter target for sanctions. There are some states um, in Mexico, and I know you know this well, Joe, heavily drug-involved states like Chihuahua, Guerrero, Sinaloa, which has you know a major cartel named after it. Um, there, are, these states look like St. Louis did in the early 1930s. You know, the the rule of law can't be found in them, right? And the trick that the United States the way in which the United States navigated itself beyond this crisis of legitimacy, and that's what it is, it's a crisis of government legitimacy, was a combination, um, well, of the repeal of alcohol prohibition, taking away the tremendous profits available to alcohol traffickers. But it was a combination of sticks. So they there was a war on crime, to be sure, um, and the FBI went through its critical, its seminal development as part of that war on the crime in the early 1930s. But more importantly, what the government did was give ordinary Americans a stake in the government itself, you know, by providing social policy and programs that before that time, the federal government really did not do. And so once average Americans felt like the government was on their side, they found it easier to support um, the war on crime, so to speak, and they no longer cheered, you know, Pretty Boyd Floyd or John Dillinger when they came up in the movies on the most wanted list. You know, when those guys came up, they were bandits when they came up and the people cheered. They they rooted for the bandits because after all, what had the government done for them lately? It's a very similar story of what's going on in Mexico. Right. And drug prohibition is, if anything, clouding the picture. And what we need to do is motivate the Mexican government to solve its own crisis of legitimacy. 
Fascinating, fascinating. It's always fascinating speaking with you, Kathleen, and you provide the historical perspective and tie it all together for us. I just I love it. Uh, uh, before I let you go, where uh, where can people find you these days? I think you're on Blue Sky now, right? Are you on Blue Sky? I am on Blue Sky. I actually haven't paid that much attention to, but I, I do intend to actually go on. I'm, I have a private account on Twitter because that's kind of what I think of Twitter these days. And yeah. I do intend to actually close it down and move totally to Blue Sky. So please, if you are listening and would like to engage, please join me on Blue Sky. Yeah, Blue Sky. And I'm there. I've been spending more time there, too, because, again, Twitter is a scary place. Kathleen Friedel, it's always, always a, a pleasure to speak with you. I always feel like I learn when I either when I speak with you or when I hear you. So thank you so much for joining us tonight on Tell Me Everything. Thanks for having me, Joe. We're going to take a break. We'll be back and we're going to get on the phones in just a few minutes. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Just want to give a little bit of a news update. The president, President Biden, was in Lahana today uh, on Maui. As I mentioned when I was talking to Bill earlier, uh, Washington Post is reporting that there are still 800 people missing from those horrific fires. The president gave remarks. He, of course, had signed an emergency declaration. It's, weirdly, the media has been obsessed with Biden and Hawaii. You know, I mean, we had Trump throwing paper towels at people after Maria, but it, it's just been this weird obsession. Um, I, you know, I know they like to both sides things, but the president was there today and um, he made remarks. And then he spoke to a group at a community event and he said, if anyone would like to speak to me, I'll stay around. And Matt Visor who is a Washington Post reporter, is the pool reporter who's covering it. So he tweets this, and then he said, the president did appear to stay, preparing to go table by table. So it was like, wait a minute, the president did appear to stay, or the president stayed? You're right there, Matt Visor. So he puts this out, and it's just that little bit of bitchiness that you get from these White House reporters. They just have to be a little more clever and a little more smug, and, you know, 
they just they just can't just so annoying and the way they versus the way they treated trump and still do it's just it's phenomenal really to me and then one other story before i get on the phones this horrific horrific story out of cedar glen california over the weekend where shopkeeper lori carlton was shot and killed by a man who was upset because she flew the pride flag at her store and she would have them torn down she put them back up she was an ally to the lgbtq community and it's just so horrible her daughter ari talked to the new york times and said i just want the world to remember her for who she was and that she passed away in a place that she cherished doing what she loved and defending something that was so important to her it's so such powerful words meanwhile the 27-year-old man who shot her had been killed by police. Now, he's been identified. I'm not going to say his name because he's not worthy of that. But he had a history of making posts that were very critical of the LGBTQ community on many social media platforms. He actually had a Twitter account. And one of his tweets, the, the pin tweet, was the burning pride flag. And he said that was what you do with that flag, set it on fire. Well, he did more, obviously. He killed a woman because of it. So this is the world that Republicans are creating with their incessant hatred of our community. And if you, you know, and I know people will say, you know, they're just doing it for this reason, doing it for that reason. No, they're not. They know exactly what they're doing. Ron DeSantis knows exactly what he's doing. When I... It's aimed at you, you know it. When the hatred and the vitriol is aimed at you, you know it. And there are a lot of people listening in this to, to our channel who are women, who are people of color, who are um, Jewish or, or Muslim or other religions who have been attacked by Republicans and others. When they're coming after you, you know it. They can use their little code words and try and sugarcoat it for the media and pretend otherwise. When they're coming after you, you know it. And you know who else knows it? The sick and deranged lone gunmen out there who take them up. And we were just talking earlier about, you know, people who've threatened judges, people who have threatened the president. This shit is happening more and more. It is a da it's dangerous out there and Republican leaders should shut it down, but they don't because of their goddamn sick, deranged base. It's disgusting. Makes me sick. Anyways, let's talk to Stephen in Kentucky because he's always someone who can give us some perspective on life. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Hello, dear. How are you this evening? I'm all right. How well, are I'm you? I'm glad John... I'm glad Mr. Fugelsang had the foresight to ask you to host. I think you're wonderful all the time. I just wanted you to know that I really appreciate you uh, on here and uh, just wanted you to know that <laughs> starting out. Well, that means a um, lot to me. Thank you, Stephen. I really appreciate oh, that. Oh, no, you're quite welcome. I wanted to start out with a quote tonight, actually, before I begin. And Robert Kennedy was a hero of mine. And um, he said back in 1968, some men, and we can add women on that as well nowadays, see things as they are and ask why. I dream of things that never were and ask why not. And that was a secret with the Kennedys, actually. Mr. K his brother, President, the late President Kennedy, talked about 
the new frontier in 1960. And you can go into Star Trek, you know, in the 1960s, you know, that was kind of indicating a new frontier as well on television at that time. And it's, a, it's the unknown. And that's where all this stuff stems from, fear of the unknown, xenophobia, you could even call it, you know, all this fear of the unknown, fear of difference, fear of novelty, fear of the immigrants. And then we proceed forward into fear of black and brown people we do. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, I happen to be a member of the LGBTQ community. And that terrorist that murdered that woman, if you think that's going to stop us and put us back into the closet, oh, my dear, you are sorely mistaken. Because let me tell you something. The fact is, I'm sorry that that young man sat there and was a closet case. And obviously he was. Mr. DeSantis obviously is, too. I saw that homoerotic little ad that he put out a month or two ago, you know, obviously. J. Edgar Hoover used to do the same thing. We all know about him and his little pink tutus and his underage cabana boys. I I wouldn't be surprised if Ron DeSantis possibly had that going on. You never know. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Well, you never know, obviously. Uh, Of course, they used to say that about Dickie Nixon, too, with the B.B. Rizzuto, too. You never know. But other than that, though, that aside for a moment, you know, I do not understand for people that claim to be pro-life and for those that preach to us about this, and it makes so much sense to me whenever there's another school shooting in this country, mental health care reform is the rallying cry from this side, and yet if they enact that, that means that they won't have anybody vote for them because they need these crazy and they're crazy. And Rodney, let me tell you, dear, I heard your statement earlier. You know, I just want to challenge you and your ilk about something. You want to sit there and lay your his dysfunction at our doorsteps. Who the hell do you people think you are? You are you all are the ones to blame for this because you know damn good and well that this man is dysfunctional and he is sick and twisted in the head. And yet, what do you people do? You encourage it. It's called a marriage of convenience, is what it is. And you know what holds these people together? Let's just expose it for what it is and put it all on the table. All the cards on the table. What it is is bigotry. Because you people are afraid of the unknown. I've got news for you, honey. Let me tell you something. If we ever are to eradicate terrorism in this world, and let me tell you something, we have the ability to do so. But the fact is we don't understand how to do so. And let me tell you something. The fear of the unknown is the root of terrorism. It's the mother of all fears. And we all have to come to terms with that in who we are, the diversity within us, those of us at least that have a conscience, those of us that don't. Obviously, Donald Trump, your precious saint up there, does not have a conscience. He is a sociopath. And Rodney, let me tell you this, too. You know, the fact is, did you ever ever stop to think that maybe the reason why your beloved Donnie boy lost is because he was a lousy president. He prized power over people. You want to talk about him, his record? Let's talk about his record for a moment. He mur- How many people died as a result of his ignorance and incompetence at the helm during COVID? One of my relatives did. You want to sit there and get into it? I'll get into it with you, honey. The fact is, he murdered those people because he was telling them to, to inject themselves with bleach. 
Who the hell does that? That is just ridiculous. These people need to be slapped across the face about 25,000 times to get out of their hysteria, to make them see reason. This is ridiculous. I cannot believe this, the way they are just so willing for us to descend into chaos and confusion and more dysfunction simply because they are too afraid of the unknown. Well, that's your problem. Go, to, uh, go get yourself a th- psychiatrist like any other normal person and work through your problems on your own time. Because let me tell you something, we're not going to take this bullshit any longer. I'm so Stephen, sick of that is just, publicizing oh my God. people's addresses. This is- all this My crap friend, about him sitting there going we, after this Willis woman and then him going after Mr. Smith, that Smith man and all this. It's ridiculous. They're doing their Stephen, job. We're at the top. I gotta, Stephen, I hate to cut you off because you are on such Sorry, a roll, but this is exactly what we needed tonight, really My friend, really burns me up. I Thank know, you, but dear. we are at the top. Thank you for the call, though. We needed oh, that, welcome. Stephen. You're welcome. My name's Joe Sudby. I'll be back with you tomorrow night here on Tell Me Everything. 